You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. So if you read the headlines out there, it is a very scary world, according to all the headlines we read. So today, I've got two of my mentors and two experts here in the local Colorado market to talk about national real estate trends, to go through what's really going on, and then debunk seven myths or common questions we're seeing out there. My name is Chris Lopez. I'm the host, and my two experts are Joe Massey with Castle & Cook. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Great to see you. And Lon Welsh with Iron & Capital. Good morning, Lon. Thank you for having me. So this is a presentation that Joe and Lon do regularly together. They teach a lot of trends, and they are just a dynamic duo full of real estate education, financial information, kind of like two better guys to give us the trends. So I'm going to turn over to you guys. I'm going to ask a bunch of questions, and we're going to dive into what's really going on in the market. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the opportunity today. So, you know, we've done local level trends for the front range of Colorado for the better part of 15 years. We've updated it on a quarterly basis, but there's been so much dislocation in the economy just over this last, say, two and a half years that we started doing a national trends package, just looking at the broader economic trends, what does it mean for real estate? So even if you're not in Colorado, I think you'll find all this stuff to be really re relevant today. So uh, these are the trends I want to talk about. And on each of the slides, when we introduce a new topic, you're going to see a media myth on the right-hand side and then sort of the economic reality. And then there'll be some slides that go behind that that provide support points to all those bullet points. So if you're in a hurry and you're going to look at just, say, the PDF version of this, you can just look at these seven summary slides and get all the main messages from the entire package. Uh, my goal is that you'll probably get sucked in onto two or three, and then you can do a deep dive very specifically just to the two or three slides that you need that are your client need at this moment without having to go through the entire deck. So that's kind of like a primer of how to use this in a really efficient sort of way. So I want to talk about, is there going to be a foreclosure boom like we had in 2007, eight and nine? So uh, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about lending standards? Is it easy to get a loan right now? Uh, great question. So this chart here shows the um, efficiency or ease of getting lending. And if you go back to June of 2006, you see that was the peak where we were almost rated at a 900, indicating that it was very, very easy to get a loan. If you were alive and had a 500 credit score, you could get a mortgage. And then what happened that easy lending standards lead to foreclosures, which then leads to tightening in the credit market. And you see that by June of 2008, eight, that had fallen off a cliff and it became very difficult to get a mortgage. And this is when people started to learn what is an underwriter? What is uh, a paycheck stub? What, Do I what do you, documentation? Or you no actually have to send me your tax returns, right? Um, and so then you can see over the course of the next decade or so, lending eased up and gets to almost 200 in June of 2019. And then there's a pandemic, and that leads to more strict lending standards up to about June of 2020. And now we are historically low right now that you have to have a job or be self-employed and have some income. We're going to verify your income. We're going to verify your assets. Um, this has led to really great loans being made and doesn't lead to a lot of the riskiness that we saw back in 2006 and seven, which led to a lot of those foreclosures. Because you know what? If you've got income and you've got assets, really high likelihood you're going to pay your debts. Exactly. I think there's a lot of confusion in the media that the last giant recession that we had in 2007, 8, 9 from the real estate crash, the root cause of that was easy credit. You know, my dog bought a doghouse in 2006 and he had to give it back to the bank in 07. <laughs> All right, right. So the lending is really tough. So another reason why we think that a foreclosure boom is unlikely is that the mortgage debt across all of America is really affordable right now. Uh, Joe, like, did you do a lot of refinances in the last two years? Absolutely. Yes, a ton. So pretty much everybody I know has refinanced their house and most of their investment properties somewhere in the 3% range. Mm -hmm. So if you take a look at the commitment for all of the mortgage payments of America divided by the income of those people, you see that it's only a 3.8% burden, which is about as low as it has been in the last 40 years. So the mortgages right now are super duper affordable. So there's not any chance of stress from that. That's right. And I want to make a note here. I know we got a lot of people listening to the audio of this. We're going to best describe the slides and we can always, you can always download the PDF as well or join us in the YouTube video to see all the slides that Joe and Lon are talking about. Yeah, thanks for reminding me of that. So for the guys on the on the audio only as they're driving, um, the lowest that we had experienced was back in 1980, if you can remember back then, uh, where 4.4% of national income was required to make the mortgage payment. It got as bad as 7.2% 
in October of 2007, right before the crash. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had a lot of people who really didn't have very much income that were getting loans they really shouldn't have. And then no surprise, they couldn't make the mortgage payment. They had to give the the, loan, the, the houses back. We're at 3.8 right now. We're at uh, about half of where we were at the peak. So, I mean, this just chart couldn't make the point more clearly that we're nothing at all in an, an economic situation that looks like 2007. That's right. So, um, what do we have right now for distress sales? So by distress, we mean what's going on for foreclosures and short sales as a percentage of all of the home sales, homes and condos that are taking place. And what do you see on this one, uh, Joe? Almost zero. And you see that over on the far right-hand side of the chart is foreclosure and distress sale activity is nearly zero. Look over at the left-hand side of the chart in January of 2012, 35% of homes were some sort of foreclosure or short sale. And that's what's in our memory, right? The last uh, recession was this massive foreclosure crisis. Well, we're going into another recession, I believe, but it's for two different reasons. And one of the headlines that you'll see is foreclosure activity is up 300%. Foreclosure activity is up 500%. Well, let's think about it. Last year, there might have been two foreclosures in the Denver metro area. This year, if you've got 10, yes, it's up 500%, but 10 foreclosures is not a meaningful number that's going to move the needle in any in any particular manner. Right. So, you know, you see in the evidence here that there's almost no distress activity because it's very easy for people to make the payments they need to make. So this gets to, to the chart that uh, that Joe was just talking about, that we hit bottom dead center for foreclosure filings in 2021. And if I recall, and you can correct me on this, uh, it was not legal to start a foreclosure during COVID by congressional action, right? That's correct. And that just burned off recently. So now if you're not paying your mortgage, finally, you know, if the bank could say, well, yeah, we'll have to take your house back. Yeah. But if the bank calls you and says, okay, you haven't been making your payments for the last 18 months, we're going to go ahead and foreclose. What's happened to prices over the last 18 months? They've gone Skyrocket. up 20 percent, right? You're not going to go to foreclosure. You're going to call your local real estate agent and say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Real Estate Agent, can you sell my house and get me this $100,000 of equity? Yes. You're not going to let the bank take it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen. Yep. Okay. This chart's a little bit complicated. So for the guys who are listening, um, this will show from the last, say, 15 years, what percentage of the homes in America have negative equity or are underwater, as you often see it in the headlines. And what I mean by that is if the value of the house is less then the debt, it's called, it's underwater. So then if you lose your job or your spouse gets sick and you can't make the mortgage payment, you're really in a bind because you can't just like list the house and sell it because it wouldn't be a sufficient amount of proceeds. So either the bank would have to accept less money than is owed, which is a short sale, or they'd go through the whole foreclosure process, which is even less pleasant at all. So you can see that back in 2011, which is sort of the peak of the last housing crisis, that we had nearly 28% of homes in America that were underwater in value. That's why we had so many foreclosures and short sales as distress sales. Right. Um, right now, we're at 0.4% are in a negative equity situation. So basically, there's been so much appreciation that virtually everybody in America is sitting on a lot of equity in their house. So what's particularly uh, helpful about this is, is that this analyst did a study of, well, what if there was a national price decline of 15% of home values? What percentage of the homes would be underwater then? And the answer is 3.5%. So even if we were to see a large national price correction, which I think is highly unlikely, most people, 96%, would still have enough equity they could sell their house the next day. So there isn't really any realistic scenario I can see where we're going to have any foreclosures really anytime soon. Yeah, nothing meaningful. And I really love this chart because I talk to a lot of people and they say, Joe, I'm waiting for prices to go down because there's going to be opportunities in foreclosure. <laughs> this points out if with a 15% price decline, which A, is, I believe, unlikely, um, B, even if it does happen for every hundred homes listed, maybe four of them are going to be a foreclosure or short sale. There's not going to be a meaningful impact that's truly going to set up a lot of opportunities for you to buy a property well below list get price. like a huge deal. Yep. It's not going to happen. And, and having bought 80 properties just for myself, not even counting clients during the last foreclosure boom, I can tell you that we would look at 20 to 30 bank-owned properties to find one that we wanted to buy. Most of them were not a deal. Like they were really beat up and they were selling for really cheap because they were a doghouse. They were a mess. That's what they should have sold for. So um, conclusion there is that no chance really of a foreclosure boom anytime soon. So the related uh, question to this is, will the prices drop? And I think that's incredibly unlikely. Um, What I commonly hear from people or I'll see in the media is that, well, what goes up must come down. Well, the laws of physics governing a baseball in uh, earth with gravity are different than economic rules governing what happens to home prices. Let's kind of go through all that. 
So you're probably seeing scary headlines, you know, buying a home at the wrong time can backfire big time. This is why it may pay to wait. So you're probably seeing headlines like that. So here is um, seven economists that spend all their day thinking about the housing market and what they think is going to happen for price appreciation this year. And you can see Freddie Mac, uh, Fannie Mae, the National Association of Realtors, the Mortgage Banker Association, and a couple others. And the consensus of all their forecasts is that we expect to see about 11% appreciation this year. And I think that's probably pretty close and probably what we're going to see generically on the front range of Colorado. Um, what I mean by the front range, if you're not in Colorado, is north, like Fort Collins, Greeley, down to Boulder, Denver, Aurora, and then down to Colorado Springs and Pueblo would be sort of the front range. Can I pause you on that for yeah, one of second? So this, I think, is really important because we are looking at national level data, and I think there could be some variations in particular markets and, more importantly, some sub-markets. You yes. might see a neighborhood that properties were selling $150,000, $300,000 above list price. There might be some pockets where values are going to go down. That doesn't mean the overall market is going to go down. So I do think there will be a handful of opportunities, but overall, the market as a whole is going to continue to go up. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. So I don't have a slide for this, but uh, at least in the Denver metro area, we uh, take all of the metro stats, break it into 450 little neighborhoods, and then we do the supply-demand analysis, the price change, how much marketing time, what discounts are we seeing for every one of those 450 little neighborhoods. I, I do expect that we'll see, as you said, some neighborhoods will have price declines. Mm -hmm. um, we've been studying that actually for about nine months now, taking a look at, well, if I, if I rewind nine months in time and take a look at what neighborhoods had too much inventory relative to the amount of buyer traffic, and we're also experiencing increases in marketing time, increases in discount, I would expect that sometime soon I'd see price declines in those neighborhoods. I don't have any clear evidence of that yet. Um, so I guess we'll see. I'll keep looking every quarter and hopefully someday I'll have a chart that's like really amazing. You'll see me in the Denver Post. I keep looking and I'm like, nope, still going up. Yeah, everything <laughs> is still going up. You know, one other uh, stat here that probably be really good to talk about, we don't have a slide, but just for you as a listener or viewer is that you want to be really read carefully when you read these headlines about prices going down or prices going up is what are the time periods that are being examined? Very frequently, what's being cited is we took a look at what happened in August of this year versus July of this year, and we saw that there was a price decline. And I believe that was true nationally. It was certainly true here in Denver. That's not material information because if you took a look over the last 20 years, you'll usually see a price decline between summer and early fall. The reason is families with children disproportionately tend to move in the summer months when their kids are out of school. Mm -hmm. So you sell a large share of very large homes in the summer months that tend to be a lot more expensive. People who move outside of the peak summer season tend to be people who are single or maybe they're just a married couple without any kids and they have a much smaller house that's much cheaper. So you'll see much lower average prices during the fall than you will in the summer. So it's easy for someone to make an incorrect conclusion about what's happening in the overall market by looking at August versus July, there's a price decline, so the market's going to hell. That, that just doesn't make any sense. The stat that you want to look at is the year-on-year -year change. So if you take a look at what happened in July of this year versus July of last year, August this year versus August last year, that's the metric you really want to look at. Mm -hmm. So this slide is looking at that for the entire year of 2022 versus the entire year of 2021, what price change do we anticipate? And we, we anticipate like an 11% change. Um, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, great point. Um, I'm glad that you teed that up because uh, the media doesn't make it easy. They just pick the number that suits the headline they want to write. That's right. So um, those seven economists, if you were to ask them what price increases do you anticipate over each of the next five years, what you find is uh, about a 9% average increase for this year and then in the 3 to 4% range for the next four years that come after that. It's possible that inflation will be slightly greater than that. So it's possible that the real estate market appreciation won't quite keep up with inflation over the next several years, but it will probably be relatively close. Any thoughts on that one? You know, I, I don't have a graph for this, but I think it's important to remember that the average appreciation in Denver has been 6% over the last 40 years. Nationally, I think it's somewhere between 45 and 5%. Oh, yep. All right. So if you look at this graph, you say, well, prices are going to uh, increase less than they have over the 40-year average. But let's not forget what happened in 2020. 2021 and now into 2022, you've had 15% appreciation, 18% appreciation, and now in 2022, likely 11% appreciation. 
So over the course of this decade, you're still going to experience that same average 5 to 6% appreciation. On average. It's all just been front-loaded to the right. first three years of the decade, right? So people that have owned real estate since 2020 are experiencing a disproportionate amount of appreciation as compared to people that are buying today, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't buy today. You're still going to get that growth over the long term. Right, exactly. And something else to think about is that if you get 4% appreciation on your house, but you only put 10% down, you saw 40% appreciation on your equity investment. On your money, and that's it's right. pretty tough to find a 40% return uh, anywhere else on the planet. I spent a lot of time looking and don't yeah. generally find it. Looking for the get, r- get rich quick scheme there. <laughs> so um, we don't think that uh, prices are going to drop. The economists don't think they're going to drop either. And why is that? So I want to drill into the supply side and the demand side to give you some color as to why we think the real estate market will continue to be relatively resilient through the face of the recession, trade winds in Ukraine, and everything else that's going on. So the first one is about supply. So the chart here shows you the number of new homes, and this includes condos, getting built over the last 50 years. And you can see that the average over 50 years is right at about 1 million new homes per year. But if you take a look over the last 14 years, after the crash that we had in 2007, we have not built anywhere close to a million new homes, not even one time in the last 14 years. If you take a look at the area underneath the line, there's four and a half million homes that you would anticipate would have been built that haven't been built uh, just because the home builders have been much below their typical rate of construction. Another factor that's not really well illustrated on this chart is that the number of people in America today, population-wise, is quite a lot larger than it Mm -hmm. was in 1970. So if anything, the number of new homes should be increasing a little bit as our target as the population increases. So with this lack of homes, um, that's a big part of why we have a shortage of inventory, and that's powering a lot of price increases. That's right. Um, So that nationwide probably isn't going to change a whole lot. And if you're a Colorado listener, um, the additional factors of frustration on this is that, you know, we have a scarcity of water. There's not a lot of building ready lots that are available. Um, And you could take a look, like when you've got a large developer taking down a 300 acre parcel, you know, somewhere in Douglas County, like say near Castle Rock, you can predict that it'll probably take three to four years to get through the entitlement process, get the horizontal construction that, you know, roads, sewers, putting the electrical Mm -hmm. on the ground so that I've got a lot that's ready to put a house onto. That whole process takes about four years. So I can take a look at the land sales that are going through that process over the last four years, and I can tell you exactly how many buildable lots I'm going to have for the next four years. And I can tell you, it's nowhere close to this number. Yeah, it's not even nearly enough to even keep up with regular demand, much less make up the shortage from the last 14 years. So we're going to have a supply side constraint for homes for sale for at least the next four years, at least in the Colorado market. Mm -hmm. Um, This chart just shows you the same thing normalized for uh, the population. So supply side, we're not bringing a lot of supply on. Uh, What's happening from a demand side? So this chart will show you the number of citizens that we have in each age cohort of five years. And you can see that in the age cohort of 25 to 29 year olds, we've got uh, just shy of like 23 million citizens in that age bracket. That's the largest cohort of all of the different cohorts we have alive in America right now. Uh, The next highest would be the baby boomers that are between 55 and 59 years old. Um, But there's actually more in the millennial group than there is in the baby boomer group. That's not a widely known statistic for some reason. And and demographics is destiny, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. with real estate on a macro sense. Um, If you take a look at the peak home buying years, people who are between the age of 20 and 34, they're forming families, having their first kids, getting real jobs. These people should be buying lots and lots of homes. And we've got a gigantic number of people in this cohort right now. So there's lots and lots of demand in the market now for a first-time buyer or a first-time trade-up. And there's a whole bunch of kids that are 20 to 22 that are right behind them ready to buy. But we're not building any new homes at the correct pace to deliver to this generation. So as a result, Inventory is going to be very scarce, generally speaking, for quite a while. Um, Any thoughts on that, guys, you wanted to add in? I think you're spot on. I talk with a lot of younger buyers that want to buy a property, and maybe them and their brother are buying a property because it's more expensive. Or maybe them um, plus two roommates are buying a property. So there's a lot of folks in that cohort that want to buy, 
but haven't figured out how or prices are more expensive, et cetera. But the ones that are really successful are finding a way to make it work. Yeah, it's going to require teaming up just to get the income that's required. Yep. And something right. else with all the new builds coming on, a lot of them aren't affordable first-time home buyer entry-level homes. They're nope. higher right. end, more luxury for trade-up buyers or people on their second or third house, which just hurts those first-time home buyers a lot more. Yeah, right. I'm really glad that you brought that up because there's a really good economic reason why we're seeing that behavior in the market. If, if you've got a scarcity of building lots, and if I have 200 grand of gross margin when I build a million dollar house, and I have like 30 grand of gross margin if I build a quarter million dollar condo as a builder, well, what should I build? You take the higher profit margin. You're only going to take the higher profit margin. So, and and the challenge is that in some parts of the Denver metro area, it's like 40 to 50 thousand dollars just for a water tap. So every single condo, every single house is going to pay the exact same 40 to 50 grand for the water tap, whether it's a million bucks or a quarter million. It makes it really difficult to build anything profitably for a quarter million bucks. And I've got to spend 50,000 bucks just to get water and sewer connected. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not going to get any better with the drought that we've got. I agree. Um, all right. So prices are unlikely to drop. Is the recession going to wreck the market? Um, so I, I see this in the headlines periodically. So I want to take a look at the economic history of the last couple of recessions to give us some guidance of what we should expect. So is a recession coming? So a really good way to know that is if the yield curve gets inverted. So uh, this will be probably one of the more technical things we talk about today. So the way to think about this is the government needs to borrow a lot of money to fund our deficit. And they can do it on a really short-term basis for, say, 90 days, or a really long-term basis for, say, 30 years, or a couple different maturities in between. Uh, What the yield curve inversion is, is if just taking the difference between the 10-year treasury and the two-year treasury. Normally speaking, the longer you borrow the money, the more interest you have to offer to the investor because they've committed to you for that duration of period. Um, A yield curve inversion is something really weird where the short-term bond is more expensive than the long-term bond. Mm -hmm. And you can see that we went into an inversion in March of this year, and it's it's really inverted now. This chart's a little bit out of date. It's actually quite a lot more so even than that. So the last six times we saw the yield curve invert, we had a recession every single time. It's a perfect predictor historically over the last 35, 40 years of recessions. So how long does it take from the yield curve inversion to when the recession starts? Uh, The answer is about 18 months on average, although it varies a lot, anywhere from seven to 35 months. I feel like that number of when does the yield curve invert and when does the recession begin, as you're looking at the right side of the chart, I feel like it's becoming a shorter period of time because data is more accessible. Yes. Right? So the yield curve is inverting closer to when the recession occurs because you just have more information about it. Yeah. And we've got better forecasting tools and just better analytics. Yeah. I didn't realize this. The Federal Reserve employs more PhDs in economics than any other institution on the entire planet. Wow. Hey, if this real estate thing doesn't work out, well, I'll uh, put your resume <laughs> in over there. <laughs> exactly. Maybe I've got a second career after all. So, um, so we're, you, we're almost certain to have a recession based on historical uh, data. So uh, when will the recession start? If it hasn't started already, probably within the next 18 months, but probably a little sooner than that. So your next question might be, how long will the recession last once we have it? So this chart takes a look at every recession that we've had in America since 1949. The vast majority of the recessions have lasted for two quarters. There's a couple that went for three. And in 2008, we had one that went for a full year, four quarters. None of them lasted longer than that. So odds are that we'll get started on this recession if we haven't already sometime probably this year, and that we'll probably be coming out of this recession by about this time next year at the latest. Yep, I agree. So uh, although it's certainly on the headlines in everybody's mind right now, nonstop, uh, this recession will be, behind, will be behind us before you know it. So what happens to home prices during a recession? So this chart will show you during our last six recessions how home prices uh performed. And you can see in 2007 and 8, it was the crash of the housing market due to loose lending standards that caused that very large recession. So home prices across all of America went down 20% during that recession. If you throw that one out, you can see that four out of five times home prices actually went up during the recession. Nothing exciting to write home about three and a half, four and a half, six and a half percent. Uh, 1991, they went down 2%, but otherwise it's been pretty stable. Well, I yeah. will say it's more exciting than my stock account right well, now. Well, yeah, least, exactly, being I down mean, 26% least, or something. Yeah, uh, a right. lot less of a roller coaster ride and more upward trending. And I, th- I think that's such a great point. And we get in our mind, we always think about the last recession, 
right? Well, the last recession, you know, let's take COVID out for a second because that was such a crazy time. But the last recession, housing prices cratered. Everybody's like, oh, we're going to have another recession. That means housing prices are going down 20%. No, no, no. The last recession was caused by housing prices going down by 20%. Recessions don't cause that. The housing crisis caused that recession. So you've got to remember cause and effect. Yep. Um, so I don't think we're going to see home prices decrease as a function of having a new recession. Right. I mean, technically we had a recession in the second and third quarter of 2020 when COVID was really at its most uh, threatening to the economy. And you can see that home prices went up 6% in 2020. That's right. Um, all right. Will mortgages go up or down? Mortgage rates. So uh, Joe's got a crystal ball. He's going to unveil and give us the truth, which I'm very excited to hear today. Oh, it's my favorite question. And I always steal this line from uh, my old football coach. I will make you a guarantee about mortgage rates. They will change. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this slide here shows rates going back to the 1970s. And currently, this slide's a little bit out of date, currently right at 5.7, um, according to this slide. As of today, um, mortgage 30-year mortgage rates right around 6.25. Um, keeping that in mind, though, the average over the last 40 years has been right around eight and a quarter. So we're still about 2% below the 40-year average for interest rates. Now, we all like to look at the right-hand side and say, but yeah, over the last 10 years, interest rates have been at 4%. Now they're at six and a quarter. It's so expensive. Well, that's true compared to the recent history, but compared to the last 40 years, it's still below average for the cost of borrowing money. So it's still a great time to buy. Um, You've got to obviously understand you may not be able to buy as much of a home today as you could have a year ago or two years ago, but interest rates are historically still very, very attractive. Absolutely. So it'll just take some time for the market to acclimatize to the new rate environment. I think you're exactly right. And I think we also forget the last two years have been the abnormal time when rates were 2%, 3%. That had never happened, right? But we get so focused on what is the most recent occurrence what we're in now, rates of 6%, that's actually pretty normal and even below average. So uh, this chart just shows you kind of on a weekly basis this year what's happened to rates. And it's funny because uh, today is the 20th and I updated this chart on the 1st. This chart is 19 days old. And uh, on the 1st, the rates were 5.66, not 6.25. Yeah, so we're rates up about are a half five, percent. Yeah, a little more. Um, so pretty dramatic change. So... Uh, Joe, what happens to rates during a recession? Yeah, I really love this chart. For those listeners, this uh, shows interest rates going back to 1971. And what you see is interest rates generally run up going into a recession. And then coming out of the recession, you're going to see a decrease in interest rates. So over the last six recessions, the average decrease coming out of the recession is 2.4%. But on the left-hand side of the chart, in 1980 and 1982, interest rates would go up to 16 to as much as 18%. So coming out of that recession, or those two recessions, you had a decrease of interest rates of 4% and 5%. But those two had a long way to drop. And so those really weight the average of interest rates improving by 2.4% pretty significantly. If we look at the last four recessions, what you see is the average improvement in interest rates is about 1%. So right now we're at six and a quarter. Coming out of this recession, is it reasonable to think that interest rates are going to go down by 1% to five or five and a quarter? I think that's very reasonable. But a lot of people that are sitting on the sidelines saying, hey, I'm waiting for rates to go back to 2% probably not super likely that's going to happen. No, I don't see that happening. But a point for sure. Yeah, I agree. So do you think it's better to buy now or should we wait? Oh, one of my favorite quotes that I got from Charles Roberts is the best time to buy real estate is 20 years ago. (laughs) The second best time to buy real estate is today. And the worst time to buy real estate is tomorrow. Right. Um, And this chart really breaks that down that even if interest rates were to decrease, but factoring in the increase in... um, home prices that we're expecting from you know several slides ago, even with lower interest rates, if you wait a year, very good opportunity that you're going to be paying more versus if you bought that property today at a higher interest rate. And keeping in mind, you can buy that property today at today's interest rate. Values continue to go up. Congratulations, you're the beneficiary of that appreciation. And when rates decrease coming out of the recession, give us a call. You can refinance down to those lower rates that are likely to come in the future. Yep. Marry the house and date the rate. That's yes, right. I like that new saying. Yeah. 
So uh, for the listeners, we've got a couple different scenarios on here about home price appreciation, changes in interest rates. And every realistic scenario we tried, you're better off buying today than you are waiting. So um, what will happen to rates will probably be in the fives like we talked about. What about payments? Are they unreasonable right now? So the chart here goes back to 1990. So we've got about 30 years of data. And this shows you the average price of a house, the average mortgage rate, and the average income to get a sense of how affordable is the house. So the higher the bar, the cheaper or the easier it is for the consumer to be able to afford it. And the lower the bar, the more pricey it is relative to the incomes that they've got available. So it's no particular surprise that we got to a peak of affordability in 2011 and 12. Well, why is that? Because home prices dropped 25% during the last housing crash, and the Fed drove the mortgage rates to be extremely low to re-stimulate the economy. So with all the homes being on sale, 25% off and really cheap interest rates, the affordability was astonishingly great. Mm-hmm. So Mark Twain has this great quote of lies, damn lies, and statistics. If I just showed you from 2011 to current, you would see that affordability basically got worse every single year, and right. it looks like a complete nightmare of a chart. Um, so it's really important to take a look at the broader view of about 30 years worth of data. And if you take a look at like 1990, our affordability is just a tiny bit less than it was in 1990. Um, so on a broader historical perspective, um, this is expensive right now, but not as direly as you think it might be. Yeah. And some anecdotal evidence, you know, I talked to a lot of individual buyers and I have not seen anybody yet that applies for a loan that I say, you know what? No, you simply cannot afford a home, right? Now, maybe you can't afford an $800,000 home, but maybe you can afford a 600000 Or maybe you wanted to buy a $500,000 home, but you can afford a $300,000 condo, yep. right? So one of the things is we're all concerned about affordability, and I think that's a, a real thing, but it's not necessarily that people can't afford a home. It's that maybe they can't afford the home that they wanted a year ago or two years ago, and they have to adjust their expectations a little bit. And that's really the pain of the dislocation we're going through right now is that we've got someone who's approved with you and they've got an idea in their mind of what this house is going to look like as a four bedroom, three bath in this sort of school district. And now they can get a three bedroom, two bath in that sort of school district. And that's grieving, anger, denial. You know, we need to get through that whole process and eventually people will sell a few more homes. That's right. So uh, we talked about lies, damn lies, and statistics. So the last chart is the truth. This is the chart you're going to see in the headlines about how the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, If you take a look at the average monthly payment uh, in April of 2020 through June of this year, you can see it went from $1,000 to 1900 bucks. Also statistically true, and we've just cut the chart in a way to make a really different sort of a point. So when you see this scary chart in the headlines, you'll now know how it relates to the broader historical context. Okay, um, so when I'm borrowing money from a lender, um, is debt to income an important ratio during the application process? Absolutely, we wanna know how much money you have coming in versus how much money is going out to pay your monthly debts. Um, And that is a really critical piece. And this chart shows with 20% down on a median priced home, um, according to average income in the area, or I'm I'm sorry, average income nationally, we're right at 25% for the average homeowner to afford an average property. Meaning if you make $10,000 a month, $120,000 a year between you and your spouse, you would spend approximately $2,500 for principal and interest to buy that property. That's gonna, 2,500 bucks principal and interest is gonna equate to about a $350,000 mortgage with 20% down, that's about a $440,000 property, give or take a little bit. Um, You know, and that lines up nationally with that median home price. That makes a lot of sense. So from an affordability standpoint, um, looking back over the last, I guess it's 22 years of data here, uh, we had a similar mortgage ratio in 2006, was right about 25%. It did get as low as 11.5% in 2013. So it's higher now than it was in the past, but it's not uh, any higher than it was really in 2006. Now, can it go much higher than this? Not likely. I think... Part of the challenge is incomes are not keeping up with property appreciation. So I do expect part of inflation is uh, you'll see wage growth 
theoretically, and that will hopefully taper this off right around 25 and then maybe see a little bit of a decline to 22, 23% as wages catch up with home price appreciation. Right. So this is a really important chart. So earlier we made the case why we don't think it's likely that prices are going to drop. But this chart makes the case why I don't think prices are going to go up much either. Right. Because people just can't afford to pay a whole lot more. That's right. So either you'd have to have a decline in prices, which we said isn't going to happen. We gave you the evidence for that. They'd have to have like a massive increase in income, which we may actually get for another year or two because inflation is driving a lot of income, but that's probably going to be relatively short-lived. The Fed is like obsessed with getting rid of inflation, which should be what they're doing. Yeah. Or mortgage rates have to go down. And we talked about why they'll come down a little bit during the recession, but not a lot. So if, if we agree, those are like the three facts we have to work with. That means that prices will go up, but not by much. Not as fast. That's right. Okay. Does the increase in the mortgage interest rates impact the real estate market? Well, and actually, before we move on to that, I want to uh, ask Joe a couple questions on here. I think two Tommy ones here, because I know the the mortgages or the mortgage rates are very volatile right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, people go under contract. They buy a house, buy a property, they go under contract. What should they be doing the day they go under contract, the day after? The day you go under contract, you should come in and sit down with me so we can figure out where are mortgage interest rates as of today. And I encourage 100% of my clients to lock on that particular day. You have enough things to worry about with organizing a mover, doing an inspection. What's the property going to appraise for? School for your kid. All these things, right? One thing you don't need to worry about is, is my payment going to go up by 50 bucks or is my payment going to go down by 50 bucks? Lock in your interest rate. If you're happy with the down payment, happy with the terms of the loan, lock it in and cross that item off your list of things to worry about. Great. Thanks. I just know a lot of people try to time that. Um, Go to Vegas, put it all in red. Yeah. Yeah. And if they, I mean, like my luck with timing the market, they're going to choose the wrong way. Yep. I I agree a hundred percent. I've had half a dozen clients over the past six months that said, you know what, Joe, I'm going to float because I think rates are going to get better. All six of them have lost and end up paying a quarter, an eighth, three eighths more. And that makes for an uncomfortable conversation. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about uh, this increase in mortgage rates and what impact it might have on the real estate market. So this uh, shows you 20 years, I'm sorry, 40 years worth of data uh, of when mortgage rates spiked rapidly by at least 1% or more. And that's happened six times in the last 40 years. So what we're going through right now isn't the first time we've experienced this. There's historical guidance that we can look at to understand what might happen to us. And what we see from the past is that when we have this rate spike, that home prices in the next year continue to go up every single time. The average is 8%, but there's no instance where prices went down after a mortgage rate shock. What does happen, though, is that the number of home sales declines on average by 11%. Uh, we had one situation in 2003 where the number of home sales still managed to eke a 2% increase. Every other time we had an interest rate shock, the number of sales went down for the next year. And we're on track for that right now. So what's interesting from a national standpoint is that our appreciation year over year is like in the 11% range. If you take a look at this chart, historically, it's 8%, mm-hmm. right on track. If you take a look at the change in home sales recently nationally, it's down 12 or 14%. Historically, it's minus 11. So while the changes we're going through in the real estate market right now feel uncomfortable, we're exactly on plan. Like the market is ex- 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 you know, behaving right now just like it has every other time we've had this sort of a rate shock. I love this chart because of exactly that. We're right where we're supposed to be. We're following the syllabus step by step. Yep. So what's different this time, and it's impossible for history to answer this question, unfortunately, is... Well, this time rates have spiked by 3%, not mm-hmm. by one and a half. Does that mean we'll get double the impact? And there's no real good way to know that. Yeah. I would expect that we would see that the slowdown in the number of home sales will be a little longer and a little more severe than history has suggested uh, because the rate increase has been so dramatic. I so uh, when did rates start spiking? Was it six months now? Uh, it's been almost a year. So actually uh, a year ago, uh, September, what I think, believe it was September 20th of 2021, interest rates were 2.86%. And as of last week, Friday, interest rates were at just over 6%, like 6.05. So three and a half. Yeah. So three and a half percent over the course of exactly 12 months. So rates have doubled from three to six in 12 months, really spiked in January, February up. But I really like that 12 months that you can truly say, here's a headline, interest rates have doubled. Yep. It's easy to to comprehend it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if you see this malaise in the market last for another six months. I I think that by 
February, you'll see it burn off. Why is that? Historically, you know, the best time to list a house is like late January, early February, at least in the Denver market. That may not be true everywhere nationally. And I I think we're going to have a good spring here as well. Not as red hot as 2021 by any means, but like a more quote unquote normal year like 2018, 2019. It could look a little bit like that. And just as a side note, some of the malaise in the market, I think you're exactly right. My investors are chomping at the bit. I've got a number of investors that are actually refinancing, taking cash out of their properties at higher interest rates because they know there's opportunities to buy other properties where all of the primary residence buyers are sitting on the sidelines. Unfortunately, a lot of those buyers are a little bit panicked, a little bit nervous, and they're going to wait for the spring frenzy. And so a lot of our investors are taking advantage of this slowdown to buy properties while there's not as much competition. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. So at least in the Denver market, historically speaking, what you find is the spring is the best time to be a seller. There's a lot of demand and not enough listings. And historically, uh, after the kids return to school, wait about six or eight weeks, which is right about now, actually. Historically, mm-hmm. is about the best time to be a buyer, October-ish in November. Yep. So uh, if you have been sitting on the sidelines as an investor, uh, this would be a good time to start looking. There's quite a lot more inventory in the Denver market, at least, than there was this time last year. And there's uh, certainly a lot less showing traffic and uh, things are selling at a discount now, not a premium, which is great. Yep. And sellers are willing to negotiate. You can actually do an inspection. You can actually do an appraisal. <laughs> you don't have Novel to thought. pay $100,000 above list price. It's crazy. <laughs> exactly. So before the show, um, this doesn't exactly fit in here, but you're sharing some in- interesting information, Joe, about a leading indicator of like you know what you see with some of your borrowers and their credit use. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what you think it might mean? Yeah, so without getting too detailed, we get information on our existing portfolio um, if there's changes to the borrower's credit. And a big one that we get is if they go over uh, 75% utilization of a credit card. So you've got a credit card that has $10,000 limit and you're running along spending $2,000 a month on that and paying it off. Well, if that goes above $7,500, um, we get a little alert to reach out to the client and say, hey, is everything all right? Do we need to refinance? Do we need to pay off some debts? How can we help you? And historically, over the past two to three years, I would get one to three of those notifications per month. I'm currently getting anywhere from 10 to 30 of those a day. All right, that's a leading indicator because what do people use credit cards for generally? Trips, home improvements, um, you know, Christmas, big purchases. What are people using credit cards for now? Bacon gas, and gas, groceries, yeah. right? And so we are seeing a big increase in credit card debt, which could lead to people having to sell and pay off credit card debt or refinance, or just generally make some changes in their financial situation in the future. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, before we move on here, I know we got the last two bullet points, and I know we're just sharing a lot of data and trends, which is great for people. And the three of us, we look at this stuff, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. I know for a lot of our average investors out there, this is what they do a few hours a week at best. And something I would like to mention, if you're out there listing this and and you get the high level, but you're trying to personalize it to your situation, hey, what should I do now? How should I invest? Should I sit on the sidelines? Should I sell? Should I refi? What should you do? Reach out to us. Joe's an amazing lender. Lon has just got the most knowledge around the market whatsoever. And we actually work together as a team a lot of times to help people actually take this data and then personalize it to help you actually make the right decisions. So if you're excited out there or probably more confused and scared, do not hesitate to reach out to us. Please. We are more than happy to sit down, chat with you, email, phone calls, Zoom calls, whatever, and help you take this data and then personalize it to make the right decision. Yeah, I love talking about this stuff. Clients always tell me like, oh, thanks for taking the time. I'm like, are you kidding? This, I, I know. do this my, my job. Sleep. Yeah. I, I enjoyed this stuff. So I got in the industry. Right. Joe, are you seeing any investors like uh, taking out HELOCs, home equity lines of credit, or doing refinances to get cash so that if an opportunity does come up that they're ready to go? Yeah, I have four separate investors right now, each one taking out more than half a million dollars in various different ways. A couple of them are doing first mortgage cash out refinances, a couple of them are doing HELOCs, and a couple of them are doing second mortgages on investment properties. But these four investors are taking out more than $2 million, um, and they're all separate guys, but taking out more than $2 million to reinvest into properties between Halloween and Christmas this year. Love it. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Good planning there. Yep. And the great news is if they don't find the right opportunity, it's not like they have to spend the money. That's right. They can pay the loan off. Yeah. Right. Pay back. So um, what's the relationship between inflation and home prices? So uh, we've got a chart here. It's really simple. It just shows you by decade uh, from the 1970s to current what the average inflation rate has been. The index I've got here is the consumer price index. That's sort of the broadest measure of inflation and a very common one that you see quoted in the headlines. 
And you can see that it's varied in the 1970s where it was 7% on average. So think about that for a second. We're talking right now about our inflation rates between eight and nine, which is really high. But during the entire average of the entire decade of the 70s, it was 7%. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been very spoiled with really wonderful low inflation for a while. We've kind of forgotten that there was times where we really suffered with that. Uh, During the 80s, it averaged 6% inflation. In the 90s, it was around three and a half. Uh, the 2000s, a little less. And then the 2010s, we were like around 2%, which is amazing. So currently, uh, you know, this decade, we'll see what we end up with. It'll be a little bit higher. The other line, the dotted line, shows you the average annual home price change during that decade. And these are all uh, for Denver. Uh, The national stats wouldn't look a whole lot different. And you can see that it was kind of a tie in the 1980s that the appreciation rate and the inflation were really close. It's also close to a tie in the 2000s. Uh, not statistically really all that different. But in the other decades, 1970s, 1990s, the 2010s, and so far this decade, home price appreciation did better than inflation. So if you've got someone who's worried about it's not a good time to buy a house because the inflation rates are really high, historically speaking, I wouldn't say that's true. Um, The reason for that is the largest component of the consumer price index is housing. It's a blend of rent and home prices. So uh, if you're thinking about being an investor, inflation is your best friend by far, because if you've got a rental house, you can raise the rents every year based on the inflation rate, but with a fixed rate on your 30-year mortgage, your mortgage stays identical. Every dime of that increase in the interest is extra profit for you. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like having a cash machine. One of my favorite things, this is one of my favorite charts because it's very simple, and this allows me to boil it down to one very simple question. Lon, I'm uncomfortable with inflation. What should I do? Buy real estate. Yeah. Right? That's really the message. Yep. It's a really good hedge for inflation, like gold, but Mm -hmm. unlike gold, it generates income. That's right. Gold just sits there and grows over time. This actually generates passive cash flow. Yeah. You get both, which is really, really nice. And a lot of tax benefits too. Last but not least, what's going to happen to apartment pricing? So we're going to go through the myth about cap rates and how they're related to interest rates. So... This chart will show you the 10-year treasury. So I I picked the 10-year treasury because that's a really well-understood index. It's not a perfect metric that uh, all commercial loans are based on the 10-year, but a lot of them are. So if you take a look at the 10-year, what is that at now? Uh, Like three and a half? 3.45. Yeah. So uh, if you're following along, uh, when I built this chart about, this is probably six weeks old now, it was at 2.9. So it's gone up by half a point uh, as of September 20th. Uh, so if you're listening to this October 20th, it'll probably be something really radically different. So the, the main point on this chart is that if you take a look before COVID in 2018 and 2019, the 10-year treasury was trading in the low threes. And if you took a look at it at the start of this month, it was trading at 2.9. So basically no change at all. If you take a look during the middle of COVID, the rates got as low as like 0.6%. So the Fed stimulated the market brought down the rates to jumpstart the economy. So I want to take a look at what happened to cap rates during the same time period. And what you find is that if you take a look at between 2018 before COVID to 2020 with COVID, the treasury dropped by two and a half percent. What happened to cap rates? They were flat. Not much change. (laughs) And if you take a look at COVID in 2020 today, the treasury is up by two and a half percent. And what's happened to cap rates? They haven't got that much. They haven't changed. So there's this idea that as the interest rate fluctuates, that there's going to be this massive change in the cap rates. And the reality is like, they aren't really very closely related. That's right. So let's test that theory. Um, This chart will show you the average cap rate over the last 40 years and the average 10-year treasury over the last same time period. How closely related are they? So if you take a look at that 10-year treasury and say, how many times has it spiked by 1% or more in just a year? And the answer is 10 times in the last 40 years. It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. This is not a unique occurrence. So during those 10 times when the interest rate spiked by a whole point, what happened to the cap rate? And the average is it went down by one-tenth of 1% on average. So basically no change whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the other side. What if the the interest rates dropped by 1% or more? That also has happened 10 times in the last 40 years. What happened to cap rates? On average, they went down by one-tenth of 1%, or basically no change. What's really interesting is if you look at this, it's a sawtooth. Usually pretty much every time there's a a big spike in the rates, the next year, they go down by 1%. 
Uh, here, it just happened to be the opposite. Mm-hmm. Rates went down by a point and a half or two points, and then they bounced back the following year because the stimulus was no longer required. That's right. But the cap rates were just flat through the whole thing because the you know, there's no correlation. Yeah, the institutional buyer said, you know, I'm just, it's not going to change all that quick. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting here. Like I've seen this graph a lot, and I always like staring at it because the the line for the interest rates is a uh, much more defined and has sharper peaks and movements. The cap rate is relatively a Smooth. lot smoother. Yeah, doesn't have these dramatic adjustments uh, they have. So I think this is just this blew my mind when you guys showed it to me like a couple months ago. This point because I expected that cap rates would have a lot more volatility, volatility with interest rates, but I was wrong. Yeah, yeah it's just not there. And uh, you know, someone asked me the other day, so is this actually like a, a weighted average of like the last five years to get a smooth line? Like, no, this these are the actual point numbers each year. There's no smoothing on this line whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, the interest rates are volatile, uh, but the cap rates are not. So uh, we talked about how when there's this 1% spike, either up or down, that the cap rate changes by one-tenth of a percent. What does that mean from a valuation standpoint? So uh, if you're not familiar, I'll just recap this really quick for the listener. Um, the way you think about valuation for a commercial property is you take the rents and you back out your operating expenses and that gives you some sort of NOI, net operating income. So if you pay cash for the property, you don't have a mortgage, that would be the cash flow that you would enjoy. So you can take that cash flow and divide it by the cap rate, and that gives you the value of the property. So as the cap rate goes up or down, if your cash flow doesn't change, your value will go up or down. So what I did for you here is if, just to make the math really easy for us, if, if we have $100,000 of net operating income, relatively large apartment building on a five cap, that would be a $2 million valuation. So if the cap rate goes down by a 10th from five to 4.9, you can see the value of the property goes from 2 million to 2 million and 40. So there's a $40,000 increase or a 2% increase in value. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, the cap rates go up by a 10th, you can see the value goes down by 40 grand. So that's been the typical change in cap rates from one year to the next when there's a spike or a decline in the mortgage rate, um, or sorry, in the 10-year treasury rate. So, uh, you know, the, the magnitude of changes to the valuations are are very small. Yeah, You're minimal. probably going to see more of a change because uh, you've got a 9% increase in your rents and your OPEX are probably up by 5 or 6% because of inflation. So your net operating income is growing at a pretty healthy clip this year. That is going to have a material impact on your valuation. Right. I think on this chart, the NOI, that's the number that's going to change. Yep. Right. And it's going to change positively because rents are going up. Right. That's where you're going to get your increase in value has, in my mind, nothing to do with changes in cap rates. Yep. Not nothing, very minimal. It, it's, a, it's a smaller lever. So, yeah. uh, you know, we didn't talk about it. It really wasn't the scope of this discussion, but, uh, you know, rents have been up a lot recently. Mm-hmm. I, we're anticipating that rents are going to continue to go up, not at the double digit rates that they have, but, you know, they'll still be healthy. So odds are, apartment valuations are going to drift upwards over the next couple of years because rent increases will be good. There will be very high increases in operating expenses because of the high rate of inflation, but it won't be enough to offset the rent increase. As a result, net operating income is going to grow each year over the next five years. So even if the cap rate drifts up a small amount, like a tenth per year, odds are your value will still go up. So if if you're waiting for like a deal on multifamily, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I I don't see that happening. I don't either. All right. That's our 48 slides. And I think right at an hour, which was our goal. Pretty good. Oh, that was impressive, guys. This was fantastic. Thank you, Lon. Thank you, Joe. As always, if you guys have questions, reach out to us. I mean, Joe's my go-to guy when I need, you know, a loan. I call him up a couple times a year and Joe helps me and my wife out. So thank you, Joe. A lot of our clients use Joe and a lot of your castle and Lon uses Joe. So can't recommend you enough. And I know a lot of people know Lon Welsh through your castle, but make sure you know his new venture in Ironton Capital, which is new private real estate equity firm, which has some really cool uh, features on there that helps people invest, not uh, locally, but more on a national level. A lot more details on there. So you get the experience and knowledge of Lon with almost 20 years of active deals here, now taking that to a passive and national level and doing some really cool funds, really cool strategies that way. So can't recommend guys enough. I love the information. I appreciate you guys' time. So thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys.